Welcome to another episode of Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is Brian in the still way too hot state of New York. And with me as always is Lauren from a very brainy Swansea. How are you, Brian? I would be so happy with the rain now, but we're supposed to maybe get rain tomorrow. Oh, that's so interesting and exciting. <laughs> You're mocking me. <laughs> You have no yes. idea. You have no idea how hot it is here. Is it as hot as hell? Our entire town smells like a sweaty crotch. Oh, Brian. It's true. It's just awful. So, how is Cleo standing all the heat? You know, Cleo loves it because I, I found this out recently. Cats really prefer it to be hotter than humans do. Hmm. That's because they're minions from hell. It it could be that they're minions from hell, or it could be that they're, you know, they come from lions and tigers, which are from lands that are very hot. So naturally, they like the heat. And Egypt as well. And Egypt, where they're worshipped. As they should be. But even she's like, Daddy, this sucks. Go in the freezer, get the ice cubes, put them in my bowl. Now. (laughs) Type of thing. Yeah. Not meow, now. Because she can say now. Oh, she can say whatever she wants. But, um, yeah, she's 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 dealing with the heat. It, it's, it's brutal, but uh, I do have to tell you that uh, we had, uh, it's only been two days since the last episode went up online, you know. Actually, only one day. Yes. It only went up yesterday. It only, yeah, I was thinking two days. I, I was like, it's only been... Two days. Yeah. yeah. It, it only went up yesterday, and we already have feedback. <laughs> Is it from your mother about about the snow cone challenge? Well, actually, she uh, first off, she said, what, do you think I'm fucking stupid? I don't know what Eyes Wide Shut is. <laughs> so she did know that. <laughs> but no, it was about the snow cone challenge, though. But it wasn't from her. I mean, she commented and my brother commented, but uh, I got an email saying, when you were talking about dunking your man bits in the snow cone and Lauren asked, what flavor do you prefer? I almost choked. <laughs> oh, no, we, we, we nearly had a death. Yeah, it was just like. Because it was just such a Larry King, what about the groceries question? It's like, what flavor do you like? You know? I loved it. Oh, we all know the what about the groceries story, but we won't tell that again. Um, We have got such a great guest, and I've been teasing it, been teasing it and teasing it and teasing it, but uh, I'm going to reveal it now because they're going to be coming on soon. So you ready? Mm-hmm. Indeed. I got Mark Stevens, <gasps> who wrote the book. You know the book we're I'm talking about. Ball. Yep. Yeah, Broadmoor revealed Victorian crime in the lunatic asylum. This book, um, uh, just to give people out there a heads up of who he is and what he is, um, uh, Mark's an archivist, uh, or how should I say it with an accent, Lauren? Um, archivist. There you go. Um, sorry, folks. Uh, we had a little uh, inside joke going about mispronouncing words. Yeah, because of the way the weird way you say plague. Plague. 
plague. So anyway, Live. Mark wrote these, the, an, an incredible book, an amazing book that everyone should go and get called Broadmoor Revealed, Victorian Crime and the Lunatic <laughs> Asylum. And it's about the infamous Broadmoor Asylum. Now, Mark's got a unique insight into it because he's the county archivist who has access to all the records throughout the history of Broadmoor. And Lauren, I know, I know you love the book. Yes, I do. And uh, I love the Very book. Very much. And uh, I've been working Your on it for a while. Your mom loves the book, too. Oh, my mother loves the book, yeah. And I've uh, been working on it a while, but we got him, and he's coming on today. Yes. So we're going to We've got talk... some great shows coming up, too. Oh, yeah. And uh, But we're going to be talking lunacy, or as Lauren likes to call it, my family tree. <gasps> no, I didn't say that, Brian. <laughs> Just Stop. me, right? Stop it. Just this egg corn that fell, right? Yes, because of some of the remarks that you're going to make in this. And your obsession with Pluto. Well, you know, that's not an obsession. That's just science. Science! It's an obsession. <sighs> it, it might be a little bit of an obsession, but... Um, no, I am so, so excited uh, to talk to Mark. It is just... I, I can't wait. I have a, so many questions, and I know you do. Because it's, uh, you know, the treatment of mental illness. And, and, you know, we joke a lot up on this show, and we have a lot of fun, but one of the one of the most misunderstood things is mental illness. And so few people want to talk about it that it remains a taboo subject, and it really shouldn't. People should be much more open and honest about mental illness. And it needs to be discussed more. And it needs to be looked at how historically it's been treated. And, you know, for, for a facility like Broadmoor that I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and if you can't, I know Mark will. Uh, I believe Broadmoor was the first <coughs> asylum for the criminally insane in the UK. Yes, no, that's correct. It was. Um, there, there were other older asylums, like Bethlehem, that's probably the most famous one in London that's moved around some places and uh, used to be in used to be where the Royal uh, sorry the Imperial War Museum is now but yes for the criminally insane the first one was Broadmoor and like I said just to talk about the history of it and the way people were treated and mistreated um, diagnosed how they were how they were housed and how you know I, I just can't wait to talk about it no, it's going to be amazing it's going to be great oh it's going to be uh, I can't. I'm giddy. Um, I say that a lot, don't I? Yeah, you're always giddy. <laughs> well, I think it's the Duff Swings that you ate a few days ago, though. It could be. I'm still feeling the Duff Swings from a few days ago. The the, the happiness of Duff Swings. Before yeah, um, before I get too hungry and just hang up on you right now to go get some wings, I think we should do our today in history. 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 Okay. <laughs> So is it your turn to go first? Um, I believe it is my turn to go first. And yep, mine is recent history, re relatively again. But I'm going to go today in history, July 9th, 1955. Bill Haley and the Comets Rock Around the Clock goes to number one on the Billboard charts, making it the first number one rock and roll record in history. Ooh. And the music world has never been the same. 
so mine is uh, the one that I thought you would go for with for today, and that is um, seventeen seventy six. Mm, good one. The Declaration of Independence is read to George Washington's troops. Uh, yes. I, so. you know, I do love my country. And I know we're going through some crazy times and some rough times and there's some, you know, horrible things going on and, and we're a country divided right now and there's a lot of hatred and, you know, we make a lot of jokes about um, the, the current administration and its, you know, impact on society and it, we should make those jokes, don't get me wrong, but, uh, you know, I absolutely love my country first and foremost, so... Yeah, today, 1776, the troops being read, the Declaration of Independence just, you know, gives me a sense of pride. And uh, I've I've seen um, one of the um, copies of the Declaration. Who can't pronounce words? (laughs) (laughs) No, right. Declaration of Independence ratified by the state of Delaware in the British uh, Library. Uh, They it was on loan during the. exhibition they had on the magna carta so that it was really interesting it's a if you can ever see a copy of the document it's really interesting to see and to read yeah and you know no offense to any of the countries that listen to this show um you know we love you all and we appreciate all of you but you know i absolutely love my country it is the greatest country on the planet I know everybody says that and i i really mean it i still think even with all its warts and flaws you know, it's still the greatest country in the world, and uh, that was a great today in history, the declaration being read to the troops. Thanks so much for that, Lauren. I appreciate uh, it. That's okay, and don't worry about America. Everything will be okay, because you have President Kanye. <laughs> that's right. Kanye's coming to the rescue to save the day. Oh. <laughs> and people wonder why they laugh at America. No, I think he's really sincere that he can make a difference. Yeah, yeah, sure he is. So, um, I, 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 you know, it must be, you know, I know that we're laughing and we're joking about it, but it must be so difficult for him to listen to people laugh and joke about it when he is being sincere. Well, and and that's, that's the scary thing. Oh, but, yeah. I, I will not be endorsing Kanye for president. Sorry. I am endorsing, if you saw the Weekly World News headline, um, Bat Boy officially selected Bigfoot as his running mate for the 2020 election. And I am throwing my support behind Bat Boy and Bigfoot uh, for 2020. Very sensible choice. Yeah, and you know what? I'm going to post a link in this description to that article in the Weekly World News about uh, Bat Boy choosing Bigfoot as his running mate. I've just got one last observation about the um, Declaration of Independence. Please. Ha! John Hancock was showing off. You just wanted to say cock. No, I didn't. He's showing off. John Hancock is showing off. He was. If you look at his signature, it's bigger than everybody else's. There's so many flourishes. Mm-hmm. He did that on purpose. I bet they were like, oh, John, you ruined it. No, yeah. that was... Uh, did you ever hear the reason behind that? There actually is a reason. No. There were a lot of people who were against signing it and were protesting it. And that was his way of saying, I am fully 100% behind it. So much so that I'm going to make this so big and scrawling that everyone can see it. Yeah. Which I think is pretty cool. 
Plus, he just wanted to write cock in big letters. Yeah, but you could just imagine everybody else coming after him going, Oh, really, John? You yeah. messed it up. You know, everybody, everybody else has done it so neatly, and then you've just, like, front and center me. Yeah, he, he cock-blocked him. <laughs> he did. <laughs> that's, and that's probably where the um, statement originated from. All that I know is that that's one big cock on that document. <laughs> oh dear! No wonder why they say start... it's. No wonder why they say it's hung in the walls. <laughs> oh. I think we should. I think we should start the Skype machine before um, you, you continue. You think I should go to guest o'clock? Yes, it is guest. All right. In all seriousness, folks, we'll stop laughing at this. And, uh, you know, this is why I list all the shows as explicit, by the way. Yes, because you run your mouth off. Yeah, because I run my mouth off. But you got the you got a good point, and I, I think I'm going to rev up the Skype machine now and see if we can get yeah. Mark on the line. So let's get the machine started, Lauren, and it'll be, as you say, guest o'clock. Right, Lauren, I got him. The old Skype machine worked. I got Mark on the line. Mark Stevens is the author of just one of the most incredible books I've read in recent years, um, Broadmoor Revealed, Victorian Crime in the Lunatic Asylum. And, you know, with my mm-hmm. family's history of mental illness, it's a topic very near and dear to my heart and close. And just the fact that Mark agreed to come on and just... You know, my mother has been like going, I got questions you got to ask him. I got several questions you got to ask him. So this is going to be a fun one, especially you can ask Lauren how my mother is. So welcome to the yes. show, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you um, have an interesting job, day job, that got you access to a lot of these uh, historical documents for Broadmoor, don't you? Yeah, that's right. So uh, my day job is, uh, my job title is County Archivist. I'm County Archivist for Berkshire. Uh, Berkshire is a county in the southeast of England, and uh, what we do is we look after collections from across all sorts of things that go on through the county. So part of my job is dealing with uh, public authority records, and part of it is dealing with stuff that comes from businesses or charities or um, faith groups, whatever. And amongst the public authority bits, you've got hospitals, and so uh, two of the hospital collections that I look after are actually for mental health hospitals. Uh, one of them is the local Berkshire Asylum, which became a place called Fairmile Hospital. Um, but the other is what started out life as the first criminal lunatic asylum. That's what they were called at the time. So that was the Victorian language. So the first criminal lunatic asylum for the whole of England and Wales. And that's a place in Crowthorne, a little village in the southeast corner of the county. And it's called Broadmoor. Well, there was also Australia. I mean, that was kind of a lunatic asylum for England, too, wasn't it? Um, well, as you might imagine, I mean, the British Empire managed to uh, put people into mental health hospitals throughout the globe. Um, you know, we don't need to stop at uh, England and Wales or even Australia. You know, you name a country that we meandered into and felt we had to conquer. And you can bet that we then built uh, mental health hospitals, lunatic asylums in those places as well. So, you know, anybody living in a Commonwealth country will have found there was the local institution like this. And the first one, actually, that we built, uh, we built in Ireland. 
you know, one of the many places that we we had a claim over over the centuries um, and that was a place in uh, just outside Dublin that nowadays is called Dundrum so when Broadmoor was built it was sort of built as being a bigger version of what they built in Dundrum yeah and and I'm of Irish descent so it makes perfect sense that you had the Irish asylum first that makes uh, yeah I get it <laughs> Lauren is uh, in, 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 in you know done a lot of work on <laughs> prisons and asylums in Wales and Broadmoor was the first for the criminally insane or for the criminals and the lunatics yes. what was the percentage at first of just criminals against you know undiagnosed uh, lunacy it's Broadmoor's a very special place so um I mean it there's a history in England of Wales of dealing with people who've committed offenses while being mentally ill that history stretches back absolutely through centuries but it sort of became organized in 1800 so in 1800 there was a gentleman called james hadfield he was a 29 year old silversmith from westminster he had fought in the revolutionary wars against france um, and he'd become very badly injured suffered dreadful head injuries during that and he'd started to hallucinate after he'd uh, um, come back to england and he then became obsessed with millenarianism, which, he, I mean, you may or may not have heard of, but it was like an end-of-the-world cultist thing uh, around the turn of the 18th century. Uh, and he became convinced that to bring about the second coming of Christ, he had to bring about his own death. Because he was a very religious man, uh, he couldn't commit suicide, so instead what he wanted to do was engineer a way for the state to take his life. And he decided that the way to do this would be to shoot at the monarch, King George III, uh, which he did. And he then presented the English law with a problem because uh, there was an insanity law, uh, but the way it worked was that if you were found not guilty through reason of insanity, you were just discharged back into the community. And obviously for the British establishment, that was a problem because if you discharged Hadfield back into the community, he would probably try and kill George III again. So they passed a law which accommodated him, and that law gave him a, a status as being a criminal lunatic. So it was hospitals like Broadmoor, which was built 60 years after this, um, that were built to look after these criminal lunatics. So they're all people who have been through the justice system, but then they've been found either insane at their trial hearing or they've gone insane while they've been serving a prison sentence and have been transferred to Broadmoor for care. And, you know, if, if any monarch knew anything about mental illness, it would have been George III. Well, there's definitely some irony in it, no doubt about it. And, I mean, poor old George III, I think Hadfield was, I think he was the third assassination attempt that George III went through. So he had a bit of a track record of dealing with them, poor fella. You know, and he kind of lost America. Uh, yeah, I think he would blame his politicians for that. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> we, um... We still have too many of those doomsday cults here in the states. I, I don't know what it's like on that side of the on that side of the ocean, but no. uh, a lot. We don't have any. We sent them all over to you. <laughs> we took them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. You took them all. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot. You know, at least you didn't give us the hot dogs from over there, which are terrible. We've discussed this before. <laughs> yes, we have. They're not Duff's Wings. I no, know. Duff's Wings are the best. If you ever get to the States, uh, Mark, you got to go to this place called Duff's, the best chicken wings in the world. 
and whereabouts is dust. It's in Buffalo where we invented the chicken wing. Well, we didn't really invent them. Chickens had wings, but... Yeah. We just kind of came up with the idea of frying and eating them. Yeah. You turn them into something magical. Oh, you, especially at Duff's. Now, I, I gotta go back to Broadmoor, because I will talk about Duff's for hours on end. You will. Yeah. Broadmoor is one of three asylums for the uh, criminally insane still in operation, correct? Uh, in England and Wales, yes, there's three of them now. Yeah, so there's um, Broadmoor's the original one. And then uh, basically what happens during the Victorian period is you get you get more and more diagnoses, more and more patients. So Broadmoor became full up around the turn of the 20th century. And at that point, they opened a hospital that's now called Rampton, uh, which is in Nottinghamshire, sort of Midlands of England. Uh, and that took the Broadmoor over spill. It was actually built as a branch of Broadmoor to start with. So there's those two. And then there's another in Merseyside, which is Liverpool Way, uh, which these days is called Ashworth. And there's sort of a bit of a split, really, these days. So Broadmoor and Ashworth take in men. So Broadmoor takes in men from the south of England and Wales, and Ashworth takes in men from the north of England, and Rampton takes in women. Again, all who've been through the justice system. Now, did Broadmoor used to be both men and women, or was it always men? Mm. Uh, Absolutely. It It was men and women through to 2007, I think. Wow. So, I mean really comparatively recently has there been the split effective and i mean it, it, when you go back i mean the period of time I, I deal with it's very much a community and that's and that's the approach that happened for victorian asylums uh in britain it's like a self-sufficient place um so you've got men and women they're engaged in activities like you might expect you know any village to be um engaged in um and they have all sorts of activities and entertainments um, work opportunities that are offered to them um, so it's treated very much as sort of somewhere where you go into and almost try and replicate if you like the life that you had outside and i say it's only really recently that that approach has changed see now in america our our our, our view of these asylums is like you know the movie bedlam and you know how close to reality was that there's uh, the The version of asylums that I think we tend to understand today is one that is a 20th century one. So uh, the idea of sort of closed walls and that sort of one flew over the cuckoo's Mm -hmm. nest. It's very much a... a, It's very much not what they were built as, but it's something that they became over time. So in terms of when they were built, um, certainly in Britain, Victorian asylums were built very much as being beacons of hope the Victorians were hugely aspirational. They were hugely ambitious. They believed they could do anything, and that included curing people of mental ailments. So the Victorians developed an approach um, and an idea of therapeutic um, therapy, really, and, and recovery. So the idea was that you would be occupied. Um, if you're occupied, then your mind is trained to do other things and have unhealthy thoughts. Uh, we'll give you um, regular meals which for many patients was a benefit, um, something they wouldn't have had outside. And those meals would be a quite bland food because, again, we don't want to excite or overstimulate your brain. Um, and we'll give you lots of fresh air. And, uh, indeed, British asylums, you had to build them in grounds and with surroundings that were considered to be healthy. So it's really a very, very positive approach that the Victorians took to building these places. And they thought they could cure it. And, of course, they found out, as so many have done subsequently, that actually your success rate is not going to be as high as you hoped it would be. 
So the Victorians ended up um, actually finding that you had about 30% of people who went into these places were recovered within a year. I mean, and that's not bad. 30% is actually pretty good. It's pretty good considering all the treatment was was effectively the therapeutic surroundings. Um, but that 70% that weren't cured became chronic. And, of course, these places got more and more crowded. Um, and then towards the end of the 19th century, you have an awful lot of philosophical developments that reflect this overcrowding in asylums. And you get the development of something which is called therapeutic pessimism. So the, around the turn of the 20th century, when the Edwardians are coming about, you start to have a belief that actually we can't cure most mental illnesses. So these places that were built as being beacons of hope become, in effect, dumping grounds instead. And it's that dumping ground thing that's developed through the early 20th century. You have a lot of very nasty ideas coming about. Eugenics comes about in the early 20th century. Obviously, that's then linked to a lot of the rise of fascism in Europe. You know, where you see these people as being effectively a part of society that's not economically productive. They're a part we can get rid of. And it's only really once you see the end of the Second World War and the victory for the um, the Allied forces that there's a move away from this and thinking again about a, an era of therapeutic optimism. But that only really comes after the Second World War. So that, that 1900 to 1945 period is has very much influenced the way that we think about asylums yeah and in america it was uh you know a little earlier than 1900 through the 1960s i mean it was american asylums were, were brutal just dumping grounds and uh, it, it, it's terrifying just to even read some of the story but reading your book especially the victorian attitude about we're going to cure and we're going to be do-gooders until those damn edwardians always come along with their realism you know, bastards, but 30% success rate for people that are deemed criminally insane by the court is incredible. I mean, how easy was it to get a judge to say, yeah, this guy's cuckoo? Um, it, it was quite, it was, it's an interesting question. So, I mean, I'll roll back a bit and I'll say that in, uh, in terms of um, the 30% cure, that, that relates to general population people with mental illness. So in Broadmoor's case, actually the number of people who are discharged recovered is comparatively smaller. Um, and uh, the reason for that is often obviously the severity of the index offence, the offence that took them in there in the first place. So to be discharged from Broadmoor, you've got to have various things. You've got to be considered to be rational and well. And then you've also got to have somewhere for you to go to. And if you're a man as well, you have to have a job to go to as well. So the bar is sort of gradually set higher and higher. So in Broadmoor terms, actually, for the women who are in Victorian Broadmoor, you do find the discharge rate is comparatively towards 30%. That's because an awful lot of the female patients in there would unfortunately kill their own children, um, usually during a postpartum psychotic episode, um, you know, postnatal depression. Uh, basically but a severe case of it um, and so once they'd recovered from that which was obviously based on physical symptoms then they would be well and because they didn't have to have jobs to go to so long as a relative was prepared to take care of them which is quite often the husband mm -hmm. um, then they would be discharged back to their care so the men the discharge rate is a lot smaller it's about five percent and that's because of that additional burden of having a job but yes, in terms of sentencing, um, you have to, if, when you go back to the Victorian era, you have to consider the death penalty. I mean, I appreciate you still have the death penalty in some places. 
Um, but, but in England and Wales, the death penalty is something that we're not used to having anymore. But in Victorian times, obviously, this weighed very heavily on juries. So juries were inclined to look for reasons to be merciful if they could. Um, you know, I mean, although we had the death penalty in Wales for a number of offences, actually, Victorian juries was always looked for a reason not to apply it, but to offer life imprisonment instead. So you have, in the Victorian era, you have things that are considered to be um, reasonable reasons to have a mental illness that we wouldn't associate with that today. Um, you find a lot of habitual drunkards who've committed an offence during a bout of alcoholism. Um, similarly, people who use you know, what we would now consider to be addictive drugs as well. The Victorians may have considered that having been in a, a drugged or a drunk state was reason enough to conclude that somebody was not aware of the criminal actions that they were um, undertaking. And that's something that the juries these days would not usually accept. You know, usually that would not be considered enough reason for what we now call diminished responsibility because it's your own conscious decision and choice for having taken that. So there are definitely softnesses in the Victorian era that we would not expect to find in the justice system today. Um, I was just going to say it's quite interesting because... Before the Victorian era, there was a mental health law where you couldn't execute the insane, which was subsequently changed by Henry VIII to execute someone. So um, that's why the law wasn't as protective as it used to be, because it was already changed to, um, to, to kill somebody. Yes, indeed. I mean, although actually it, these things were very, very rarely used. Um, so, I mean, the sort of the... I mean, there's very little evidence, unfortunately, for a lot of pre-1800 cases because there isn't the same um, defence of insanity that's, that's involved. But yes, there was. Um, there, there's basically common law treats somebody who's insane in in a way that largely depends on how the judge wants to interpret this. So you have, um, if you go back back in the mist of time of English law, you have the idea of sort of brutes and infants. If you come across that, which gives you a very rough idea about who might be considered. Um, to be suffering from a mental illness. I mean, effectively, it's people with intellectual disabilities who these days we would class as a completely different group of people anyway, um, but also the idea of the raving madman. Um, and this is sort of finessed very, very slowly, but not in any coherent way, to the idea that you might possibly be able to countenance the idea of somebody who has temporary bouts of insanity, which may be caused by particular triggers. So, um, I mean, once you get past Hadfield, uh, you start to get the sort of idea of people feeling they're persecuted by certain things. Um, so these days, people may feel they're persecuted by Wi-Fi or by mobile phone networks or what have you. Um, whereas if you roll back through Victorian... 5G. Yeah, 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 absolutely, 5G. Um, so, you know, when you roll back through time, you always find these things and you start to find documented. So, you know, if you go back in time, it, it's like television, radio waves before that, electricity before that. Um, and, and so the body of cases about this is comparatively small. But there is a feeling that there's gradually building in the fact that insanity may take different forms. Um, and so it's that sort of idea that the courts are struggling with as to how they sentence people. What about the um, the difference between the raving mad and, you know, the, the guy who says, you know, I had a couple too many gins and I, you know, smashed up this place. Now, they're committed to the same place. Are they Are they mingling in there at the time? I mean, were they that, like... 
kind of, um, you know, we're going to put everybody together in this wonderful, happy place and cure them all. I mean, or would they separate them? Yeah, they are separated. I mean, Victorian asylums do separate people. Um, they don't separate people by, uh, if you like, a diagnosis. Um, what they do is they separate them by behavior types. So to pick up on, on the examples that you're giving, um, if in Broadmoor they have two blocks out of six which are geared towards people who are violent. So if you're aggressive, you need managing differently. And so patients who are aggressive are in these two blocks. You've got another two blocks of people who are displaying active signs of insanity but are not considered dangerous. And then you've got a further two blocks who are, who are for those who are considered to be in some form of recovery. So it's the, it's the behavior that you're manifesting is going to determine who you mingle with during the day. So they did have, you know, this is the cray wing, this is the cray cray ring, this is the, this is the um, absolute more, bonkers wing. Well, I mean, it, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I mean, it, in terms of how you're behaving on the day, so, I mean, uh, yeah, you've got to be acting violently. It's not necessarily that you've got a violent past, um, but it's how you're presenting yourself to the staff at Broadmoor when you're actually there. So there's, I mean, there's very, in terms of sort of like the patients, if you like, who tended to, to live a, a, a life where they were making a success of it outside, um, those tend to be the ones who are much more able to control their emotions. Um, it's uh, the ones who are in the blocks where you need care because you're aggressive and the ones who can't really control themselves. You know, it's constant outbursts. Now, was it like America where people who unfortunately were suffering from chronic illness or, or something like leprosy were thrown into these places as well, just thrown into the asylum? Um, uh, in Broadmoor, obviously not because you've got to go through the criminal justice system. More broadly, what, ten what tends to happen is, is it starts out very much as being people who are generally acting badly in other English and Welsh poor law institutions. So we have we have like a prototype welfare state in this country that goes back centuries. But from the 1830s, you have something called the new poor law, and that provides institutions effectively of welfare care. So as well as asylums, uh, you get uh, workhouses, uh, like in Oliver Twist. So workhouses dispense both sort of tax credit top out to people who are working but not making enough money outside but also if you've got no work at all and nowhere to go you can go into the workhouse um, the poor are also provided for prisons as well so what tends to happen with the english and welsh asylum system is that it's people who are acting badly on the wards in workhouses and prisons who tend to be the ones who get transferred to the asylum because they figure the asylum is used to dealing with difficult to manage behavior that's how it starts out, and that gets worse and worse throughout the 19th century. So you tend to get more and more people being put in asylums because their behaviour maybe doesn't conform to norms. And so, again, that's one of the reasons why the asylums end up having a bad press, is because increasingly people get transferred to asylums if they're just not acting the way that people expect, in inverted commas, normal people should be acting in society. Yeah, that's that's something we have in common over there, and you know they're still doing that in America. Um, our mental health system here is still broken, and we are so far behind the UK in mental health diagnosis and treatment, and even talking about it. It's still a taboo subject to talk about in America, which is just ridiculous. But uh, you know, Broadmoor, you know, 
has a reputation I don't know if it's just folklore, but it has this reputation of this brutality that, at least on this side of the ocean, when we think about it, it's all about being brutal. And is that all the 20th century, quote-unquote, modern life making it terrible? Or or was it still a harsh prison in Victorian days? Um, I suppose, I mean, two things there. I think one thing is that the, the, the modern... Uh, what most people know of Broadmoor is probably what they read in tabloid papers, um, you know, or on sort of, you know, very populist TV shows and what have you. And obviously that's trying to paint a certain picture. You know, that, that wants to frighten you. That wants you to think that the sort of people who are patients in this place are terribly dangerous um, and you should be fearful um, because it's entertaining. You know, that makes entertainment for people. Um, I mean, it's it's always been a therapeutic regime. You know, very much since Victorian times, the idea of those in charge of it has been to try and promote recovery amongst its patients. Yeah, that's what it's there for. And these days, I think the average stay is about um, between six and eight years, which is comparatively not very long. In Wales, what you do is you sort of move through from high security care, which is what Broadmoor provides, into a medium secure care where you're starting to socialize more you're starting to associate with the outside world a lot more and then finally to low security care before you'd be discharged back into the community and um, so it's 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 always trying to be a hospital um and you know and that's very much it's it's focus it's raison d'etre is to be a hospital and try to treat people i mean having said that um it's full of people obviously who behave unpredictably and you do find um throughout its history you find people in the prison system who thought they'd trend wangle being transferred to somewhere like Broadmoor because they think it'll be a cushier number. Um, in the time period where I studied, the examples of that you find just don't like it there because, of course, prison, although it may be you know, a fairly sort of dank and un- un- unhelpful and not so well-resourced environment for them, it's got a lot of certainties. You know, they know how people are going to behave towards them. If you're not somebody suffering from mental illness, it's quite frightening to actually be surrounded by a lot of people who are, because they're not going to behave in a rational way. So on that basis, it's the sort of place that I think if you were, uh, unless you were not aware where you were or what you were doing, it's not somewhere you'd necessarily want to end up. Yeah, and I mean, you did have some people there, even in that time, like um, like Richard Dad, um, who in all likelihood for, for those who don't know do you uh, for those listening who don't know who richard dead is he's actually um a fairly famous painter of the victorian era do you want to explain a little bit about who and what he was and why he was there yeah certainly very happy to yes indeed yes richard dad is is, is well known for being a painter um and he uh he got quite a lot of success at his art um, and went on what's called the Grand Tour. So this was a very Victorian middle-class thing as you went around all the classical sites of Europe to educate yourself. And uh, while he was on the tour, um, and when he was in Egypt, it sort of started to act strange. When he was in Egypt, um, he became convinced that actually he was being controlled by the ancient Egyptian god Osiris, who was god of the sun. And, and Osiris was giving him commands. And the commands that Osiris was giving Dad was to battle demons. So again, this is a classic sort of persecution complex. Dad feels he needs to be out there doing some good work. Um, and his, because his family were concerned about him, they thought that actually it would be a good idea to put him into asylum care. 
Now, of course, from Dad's reasoning, if his family were the ones who wanted to lock him up and prevent him from battling demons, it wasn't much of a mental leap to think that actually maybe they were the demons he needed to take on. So the result was that he... I buy it. (laughs) So he knifed his father. Um, and he ended up in uh, he ended up in Bethlehem, Bedlam, um, and then when Broadmoor was built, he was transferred there, and he spent decades in asylum care painting. Um, and indeed, if anybody wishes to go online and Google Richard Dad, they will see many examples of what's a very intricate drawing style that Dad was famous for right up until his death in Broadmoor. But you know, just reading about him, and it's pretty obvious he was a schizophrenic. Or, you know, more than likely schizophrenic. I don't want to say for certain. There, there's no, especially at that time, no way to really care, treat that or, or or care for it. I mean, so did they just kind of leave him alone to paint and send him in meals a couple times a day and that was it? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was very happy at Broadmoor when you read his notes. So he was actually... He was placed in one of the blocks for recovering patients because actually he didn't exhibit any signs of any sort of actively dangerous mental illness while he was in there. Uh, Basically, so long as you kept dad away from uh, the idea of battling demons, he he was absolutely fine. So it's, it's funny reading his notes. He's obviously in awe of the sun. He likes to sit in the shade quite a lot. He likes to be out of Osiris's glare um, but otherwise yes i mean for victorian therapeutic care the idea of occupying the mind so it doesn't have unhealthy thoughts is a really key principle and for dad if he was painting his mind was occupied so indeed that's what he did he painted painted lots of things actually around the hospital um you know, some of which have sadly now gone but some of which still survive as well as painting things for the staff which he gave them as presents which i'm sure their families wish they'd kept now Occasionally you find dad stuff still coming up for auction, which nobody's seen before. Yes, my advice would be that if you can pick up a dad for not very much money, I would do so. But for most of us, we're looking at a sum that's probably five to six figures and is well out of our price range. Yeah, I was kidding. Yeah, he's, uh... But anybody who's got relatives that may have worked there at some time in history, check your attics, check your storage spaces, because there may be some valuable works of art there. Now, what about escape? I mean, how common was escape from Broadmoor during this time? During the Victorian era, initially, escape was actually very common. They had, um, there's like the first 10 years of the asylum's life, which is 1863 to 1873. It's a bit of a golden era for escape. Uh, And there was a wall that was just too short. So they spent a fortune gradually building the outer wall up. And they also had defective bars on the windows in the male blocks. And they were defective to the extent that if you had some sort of tool, which could be as simple as a stone that you'd picked up from the yard outside, it was fairly easy to break these things. So what with those, the combination of those two things, both of which were fixed at great cost, uh, there are, I think, 26 escape attempts in the first 10 years of the asylum life. Way, way more than there have ever. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they have, well, were... I think there were three three of them that got away entirely and were never found again. Uh, two of them were serving prison sentences at the time. So once their prison sentences were up, basically everybody stopped looking for them because they would have been out anyway. Uh, one of them was a murderer, a chap called William Bisgrove, and he was uh, hit, actually given a life sentence. So, yeah, three got away. 
never to be seen again. No idea what happened to them. Of course, they'll all be dead now. Um, and then I, I it, life, got, life got very boring after that. And they did, but, I mean, they've had the occasional well-known one, um, but not the same volume. But James Kelly was one, wasn't wasn't he? Yeah, he yeah, escaped, yeah. lived 39 years outside, and then turned up back at the doors one day. That's right. Yeah, James Kelly's a lot of fun. Yeah, he was uh, he was an upholsterer by trade, and uh, I mean. Again, you know, a typical World War patient, I'm afraid. He, he suffering from paranoia. Um, he attacked his wife you know, and killed his nearest and dearest. But a terribly sad story. Um, but then he managed to get out five years after he'd been admitted. And as you say, he you know, successfully carried on his career across the globe, you know, and uh, he only turned up back up really when he didn't see there was anywhere else for him to go. Um, this was the one place in the world that was guaranteed to give him care. It still owed him a duty of care. And since he could no longer work or look after himself, he pitched up there and asked to be let back in. Uh, it has to be said that the Home Office, um, the civil servants and politicians involved, were not happy about this at all. They didn't think Kelly should be let back in. <laughs> um, but the, the Broadmoor doctors insisted that they had a duty of care and so he was let back in and he spent the last two years of his life back well yeah he went back for the grub he probably liked to cook there it was probably tasty better than the hot dogs he was getting off the carts outside the royal albert hall i'm telling you lauren they were the worst things i ever ate in my life why i just don't understand why you were eating from a cart in the middle of the street because I, we'd been going around all day. We hadn't eaten. The concert was going to start in a couple hours. We decided just to grab a quick dog before going in to see Clapton. But anyway, that's... <laughs> I'll never get over that. That was the worst thing ever. But now you had... Um, I just I just don't think you should be eating from, from uh, random carts in the street, Brian. It's, it's no, not I, nice. play, I never will again. <laughs> yeah, you let's listen. Now, there was someone I was reading about um, that I thought was kind of an interesting character. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about uh, Christina Edmonds. Yes, everybody. I think everybody loves Christina because, again, Christina's a story uh, that just intrigues people. Uh, she's, she was a, um, a, a middle-aged woman in Brighton in 1871, and... It's difficult to find out an awful lot about her background before that. I mean, she, you know, she'd been to boarding school. She's a um, child of an architect, um, but had never left home. You know, she still lived with her, her mother in uh, a very nice house in Brighton. And uh, she seems to have decided that she was going to fall in love with her new doctor, Charles Beard. Like you do. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, and Dr. Beard was married, which obviously presented a bit of a problem. Um, but Christina was uh, determined to try and get somewhere anyway, so she started writing him love letters. And when he said, please, can you stop, uh, she next turned up at his house with a gift for his wife, which was a box of chocolate creams. <laughs> now, when Mrs. Beard ate the chocolates, uh, she became rather sick. Um, and she believed that Christina Edmonds, uh, Christiana Edmonds had poisoned her. Uh, so there was a bit of a row, and Christiana was uh, banished from the Beard's house forever. In itself, that's sort of like the nub of the story. But then something really weird happened, which was that Christiana obviously was determined to make sure that she didn't get the blame for this. And so instead, she anonymously started poisoning people around Brighton. Lots of people um, by doing a similar thing, you know, by basically leaving chocolates around the town um, or else um, buying chocolates 
injecting them with poison and then having them brought back to the shop so somebody else could buy. And it, it culminated with the death of a, a four-year-old boy who'd eaten some of these poison sweets. So there was a there was a real panic, basically, in Brighton in the summer of 1871 as to what was going on, you know, who was this mystery poisoner. And she was picked up, actually, on a train coming from uh, London back to Brighton, three carriages down from loads of parcels of poison goods, uh, which were written in her, ha- which were the dress labels, written in her handwriting. So she was found bang to rights, and, uh, and indeed, when questioned, you know, freely admitted it all, she said that she'd embarked on the poisoning campaign because she wished to remove the stain on her character. You know, she wanted to make it quite clear that it wasn't her who had poisoned uh, Mrs. Beard and that by trying to poison everybody else, she thought she would achieve this. Yeah, because now it'll look like there's just some wacko poisoner. Absolutely. So, I mean, she, she, I mean, these days we'd say she had a disordered personality which is basically the modern term for sort of psychopathic behavior. So it's somebody who uh, who doesn't really see the consequences of harm that they're causing to others. It's all about them. And Christiana was very much the sort of person where it was all about her. And when you read, I mean, she stayed in Broadmoor for 35 years um, until she died. Yeah, she was just a long her, life. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of patients did, because obviously the conditions inside were a lot better in this period they were generally for people outside in the community um and she uh, you know she said sounds like a nightmare in terms of management because she was obviously the sort of person who liked to try and provoke other people into bad behavior so she could watch the results um and she was, was also a habitual rule breaker you know if you show christiana a rule she would break it um again just to see what the consequences were um so she's a she's an interesting character because you don't I think even in the Victorian time, you don't normally associate this sort of behaviour with female patients. It's much more of a male trait. So to actually have, you know, a, a well-to-do, slightly glamorous uh, patient uh, who's demonstrating this in Victorian England was something that caught the imagination of the newspapers at the time and indeed has caught the imagination of people since. Uh, she's been, her story's been dramatised, I think, at least twice for TV. Uh, the Chocolate Cream Poisoner. Yeah. Sounds a fantastic story. And, and you know it, it's, yes. it's sick, and, and and Lauren always likes to point out I have issues. I, I kind of probably would have dug her. <laughs> Just something about that person. I'm not condoning her, like you know, poisoning people and having them die. That's that that part kind of sucks. But um, she sounds like a fun lady. High high risk relationship, I think. Oh, that's a sleep with one eye open kind of date. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, she you know she seems fun. <laughs> you have issues, Brian. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I just plus, come on, free candy, chocolate creams. I'm all about it. What? <laughs> but you would die. <laughs> ah, but I'd die happy. No, she wouldn't kill me because no one else would have her. <laughs> what? But you'd enable her to do bad stuff, and that's that's no, the really sad thing bad. Is I, would, I wouldn't encourage her to like poison people, but I probably would encourage her to act loony. <laughs> that's just it'd be fun but the chocolate cream poisoner no, and you know we established on an, on an earlier episode and, and you gotta back me up on this Mr. Stevens the Brits are really into poisoning you know, like in America we'll just shoot you but you wow. Brits are into poisoning 
it's true. I mean, obviously, you you do like guns, um, but uh, but I, I, mean, I would say poisoning is a very female way of killing. I mean, I don't know, Lauren, if you've done work on this, but things like poisoning. never drag- poisoned anyone. <laughs> things like poisoning and drowning—they're very female, female ways to uh, to kill people. Yes. Whereas it's true if you go back through the Broadmoor stuff in the Victorian era, the men are much more likely to have done something um, really uh, violently aggressive. So you're either going to knife somebody or bludgeon them, or attack them with an axe. It's that sort of thing that goes on. So I suspect I wouldn't be at all surprised if America's broadly similar. Eh, the poisoning thing—it's just uh, it never caught on in America as big. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, to get back to a s- serious note, what about um, the criminalization of homosexuality in England at the time, and you know it being considered a mental illness? Were they locking people in Broadmoor just for being homosexual, men and women? No, no. And, and indeed, I mean, actually, the, the Victorian era is much more laid back about these sorts of things. Yeah, it's something, I mean, it's something that it changes. Um, there's, there's a big uh, thing in, uh, in England and Wales. There was something called the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885. And in that, there's something called the Labouchere Amendment. And it's that that creates an offence of gross indecency, which is the thing that Oscar Wilde um, gets in prison for a, a decade after. Yeah. To, towards the end of the Victorian period, you're starting to see this this criminalisation of same-sex desire. Um, but actually, it's very, very. I, I, mean, I don't think I've ever found any through Victorian for that. That's not to say it didn't go on in some asylums, because it certainly did. Um, but it, I've never found an admission for it. And I suspect probably what happens is it's something that again fits into the Edwardian an early part of the 20th century narrative when it seemed it's gradually becoming seen as something that's so-called deviant behavior and, you know and it's deviant behavior that the early 20th century is much more interested in controlling than the victorians were yeah the victorians just pretended it didn't exist they looked the other way well basically if it didn't bother them then I, absolutely, you know, it was ignore it. I mean, the, the trouble with poor old Oscar was, of course, he sort of brought it to their attention and then wouldn't let it go. Because, um, I mean, one of the other archives I look after is the Reading Prison Archive. And so, you know, we're always, always doing Oscar Wilde things. And, you know, it's a, it's a terribly sad story. Um, you know, he was very much the architect of his own downfall. And uh, he got treated a lot more harshly than similar people yeah. who went through the courts for similar offences. Well, you just uh, you just kind of booked yourself on another show, whether you realize it or not, because we are going to be doing an Oscar Wilde thing coming up, and uh, uh, if you'd agree to it, we'd love to have you come on for that as well. I'd be happy to talk about Oscar. Um, but, but back to Broadmoor. And I want to go into a little bit more of a modern times with oh, Broadmoor now. I love Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Broadmoor's kind of got the reputation now as the the house of serial killers now. I think uh, the impression people get about Broadmoor, I think, is so much uh, through the prism of of popular media. And so the sort of patients that you'll get the focus on uh, are the exceptions rather than the rule, really. I mean, I think the, the entertainment industry is interested in two things. It's interested in monsters, and so obviously serial killers fit into the monster thing, or it's interested in geniuses, you know, people like Richard Dad. Of course, most patients don't fit into either of those categories. You know, they're comparatively rare. Um, but yes, and certainly, you know, if you're if somebody wants to do a story about Broadmoor, then usually it's going to be based on a particular individual 
who's in the hospital um, and an individual of fascination, shall we say, for some reason or another. Yeah, John Doe's not as exciting as like Peter Sutcliffe. Absolutely, no, and never will be. No, but from an academic standpoint, they are. Um, I think part of the, I think the interest for me, one of the interesting things for me is, is trying to tell some stories which are maybe the less common ones. Um, because I think, you know, if you, there's so many resources available online these days, you know, you could quite well tell a story about many, many Victorian people. Um, so you can, you can delve into everybody's individual asylum records for some reliable more and tell a story. And to a certain extent, it's the art of storytelling is making something out of what maybe didn't seem like a story. So, I mean, if we, I mean, the book, um, uh, Simon Winchester's book, which uh, I think in America is called The Professor and the Madman, which is about Chuck William Chester Minor in Broadmoor. You know, Minor himself is not massively interesting. You know, he's, he comes from a very well-to-do um, American family in Connecticut, um, came over to England to do the grand tour, like Dad, shot a man. But the interest in the story is that when he was at Broadmoor, he started submitting examples of word use for the first Oxford English Dictionary. Yeah, and he fought in the Simon American Winchester Civil War. and Yeah, know. absolutely. And Simon Winchester built that into a story, you know, and it's not, I suppose it's not necessarily an obvious story. He's not a serial killer. He's not particularly a genius necessarily. He's just somebody who's very, very good at doing a certain thing um, and has the skills in order to be able to do that certain thing. But, you know, there's a great story that's come out of that. I'm going to put you on the spot here and have you give us a story of someone that, male or female that we probably in the general public don't know anything about that you just found fascinating in your research yeah okay yes certainly um so a chap called nathaniel curra who was in broadboard in the 1880s because he had knifed an actor at the stage door a chap called henry goring of itself that's the story but actually when i delved into the reasons why curra had done this curra had lost a daughter she died and she died after having run away to join Henry Goring's troop of travelling actors. Ah. He blamed Goring. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he blamed him irrationally. There was no reason for it. But he became convinced that Goring was actually responsible, not just for the demise of his daughter, but, but, but for other threats to his family as well. And so that's why he'd... I mean, effectively, he lost everything. You know, he had a very decent job in a waterworks company. Um, but one day, he'd just taken the train up to the centre of London, waited all day, pacing around, until Goring appeared at the stage door and then killed him. And I suppose I found that interesting because from a, from a, a parenting point of view, you know, how would you feel if one of your children had run away and then they'd come back home and died? And they died of an illness that they contracted while they were they were working. You'd feel cross, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd feel dreadful about it. I don't think it would raise me to murder, but it was interesting to see somebody who had gone about that that series of actions because you had all the issues with that case that you might find today around exploitation of young people in the workplace. You know, for as many people like uh, Curra's daughter who might have run away and worked in really poor conditions because she fancied a life on the stage... For today, you can read interns who are expected to work, you know, every hour God sends for no money and maybe no promise of a job at the end of it. So I think you could see something, you can see resonance, I suppose, in stories from across the decades. And it's those sorts of things that interest me. Now, how long was someone like him sentenced to? 
uh, you got an automatic life sentence effectively. So you were given a sentence which in legal terms was caused that you were to be detained until his or her majesty's pleasure be known. So because Curra was in the Victorian age, he was detained until her majesty's pleasure be known, which is effectively a way of giving an indefinite sentence that can only be countermanded by effectively the Home Secretary saying that you can be released. I was going to say, in, in, what if the, the doctors said, hey, they're fine now, they're good? I mean, would Absolutely. it be overturned? It could be, yeah. So, I mean, and the doctors obviously would give an opinion as to whether or not they thought somebody was safe to be discharged, but ultimately it was a political decision. And it still is to a certain extent. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Do they still have the siren that rings throughout the town? The, the siren is, is just still around, but it is going to go. No! Um, it is going to go. The siren came about in 1955 after an escape because there was a chuck called John Straffan who escaped and killed a four-year-old girl in the 24 hours that he was out. So after that, they were determined to have some sort of early warning system. But early warning systems these days have a more sort of digital, ethereal and internet feel than sirens. So actually they've concluded that the quickest way to reach people will be through social media. Yeah, but it's it's such a classic kind of, you know, frightening kind of Hollywood thing, the siren yeah, it's not the same, mm. I agree. No, it's not the same. And I think and there are various locals who've lived with it for decades who will miss it. There's no doubt about it. But yeah, the modern age has taken it away. Where do you think it's going to end up? The siren? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, I think there's seven of them in total. So I presume they're all going to be dismantled individually. Oh, someone's buying them. <laughs> Keep an eye out. That's probably good advice. I'm watching eBay. Lauren, mark that down. <laughs> Let's buy a siren for the show. <laughs> oh, no. no, because you would just want to use it all of the time. I would. I would ring the siren every time I ask the question that I'm going to ask now. Pluto, is it a planet oh, or no? no. This is an obsession, Brian. Stop it. Is there not objective decision-making on that now? It, no, you got to answer. Pluto, is it still a planet or not? Uh, I've read some. apologize. It's not a planet. Oh. No, so you've already the had answer. the answer you wanted from a. You already had the answer you wanted from a physicist. I thought I would stop after that. <laughs> can't stop. I'm so yeah. hashtag pro planet Pluto. It's ridiculous. I just can't get that out of my craw. Um, what do you see as the future of a place like Broadmoor now that you know mental health is diagnosed so differently now and treated so differently now? Um. Do you think Broadmoor will continue to be uh, a hospital slash prison, or do you think it'll eventually just become one or the other? Uh, to be fair, it's always been a hospital, but it's always seen people from the criminal justice system. And I think I suspect it, there's always going to be a need for something like that. I think the issue would be if you didn't have it, what would you do? And there's probably always going to be a need for some form of highly secure psychiatric care. The issue, I suspect, is the size of that. And the hospital is a lot smaller these days than it used to be. You know, I think at its peak it had eight, a little over 800 patients in it, but we're now down to 200. Those numbers might even decline further. But my, my guess is that there will probably always be a need for highly secure psychiatric care for some people for some time, even if it's not for those people all the time. Down to 200? 
I, I, that, I don't understand. Well, it's tougher to be diagnosed as um, uh, mentally ill in trial now. I mean, at least it is in America. It's pretty hard to get a conviction for um, insanity. Yeah, the, the, I mean, as I was talking earlier about the Victorian approach to mercy, they don't know about it. Yeah, I mean, the criminal law has evolved. I think that's the way to look at it in terms of um, diminished responsibility, the, the insanity defence. Um, but I think also it illustrates the size of Broadmoor today, illustrates the fact that there are more options available. So if you go back in time, Broadmoor was basically high, medium and low secure care in one setting whereas now those three have been split out. So I, I can't give you numbers for how many patients there will be across the criminal justice system in one of those forms of secure care, but the need for high secure care is definitely diminished. And I think, that, as I say, that reflects options, but also options for treatment. Um, you know, there's been a lot of development over the last 60-odd years with pharmaceuticals and talking therapies. And although... You know, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we still don't really understand how the brain works. We're having a better stab at trying to work out how we can maybe uh, alter the behaviour of the brain. Except for the Welsh. You can't do anything for the Welsh. <laughs> we were just both waiting for Lauren's response to that. Except Tom Jones, the that's greatest right. thing ever to come out of Wales. Okay, okay. we like Tom. Okay, that's good. Yeah, we love Tom. You can build on that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We love Lauren, too. Oh, she's not speaking to us now. I'm laughing now. (laughs) (laughs) Now, at its peak, you said 800 patients were in there. What was the staff for that? Uh, Smaller than you would think, I think, is the answer to that. So for for looking after 800 patients, you've got a, a little over 100 nursing staff. Um, and very few doctors, um, you know, only sort of four or five doctors in the place. Um, so it, the number of staff has increased as time has gone on, really. And again, the way they staffed it was you tend to have more staff in the blocks where people were liable to violent outbursts and fewer staff in the blocks where they're recovering. Um, that's changed again as over time the hospitals become more purely the high secure violent outburst care um, and you tend to find that, that levels of care um, as you move into the 20th century become closer and closer to one-to-one care whereas in the Victorian era it's much much less but they still managed to maintain order uh, but they didn't intervene as much that's the difference so they're not all, really all the nursing staff are doing is just minding the shop rather than actively trying to improve people's mental well-being um, because all they've got are the tools available to them of occupation and bland food and fresh air i was going to say in fresh air and 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 um hobbies and crafts you said i mean did they actually like you know have a have a football pitch there and let people play and yeah so did they have a good coach on staff they had uh i mean they were it's funny i mean if you go go and do a talk about uh, Broadmoor around Crowthorne, you will always find people who've gone in and played football and cricket against <laughs> the patients. And I suspect that will go on for decades to come yet. Um, as, it, it, as I say, it's harder. These days, it's much harder to get, get in as a guest. Um, whereas if you go back in time, actually the local villagers and surrounding villages used to come and, and play competitive sports, but also help out with the amateur dramatics or the flower shows and things like that um it was much more of a sense of sort of trying to bring 
two communities together. But you could do that because you had these low secure, you know, in recovery patients in the hospital. As it's moved to becoming highly secure only, it's actually become much more divided off from the village around it, which is, a you know, a sad but inevitable development. Now, I have a question that uh, I have a feeling a lot of people listening are going to be offended that I ask, but, but I kind of have to, especially back when it was both men and women housed there. Were there cases of children being born there? Uh, yes, but not between patients. So, I mean, you, you do have some women who are pregnant when they're admitted. Um, and, and indeed, that's been the case, you know, throughout its history. Um, so you do have brought more babies and these babies are baptised in the font in the asylum chapel. But no uh, they, inpatient babies? No, no patient to patient babies. No, no. I mean, the, the, the Trump, I suppose the, the problem is, is that you've just got no opportunities for that sort of behaviour, I'm afraid. Um, so the, Oh, well, there's the, a way, I'm sure. <laughs> The women and the men are, are absolutely segregated um, with a big wall in between where they are. So uh, they do come together for chapel services. Um, but at those chapel services, the women sit in a gallery behind and overlooking the men and go in and come in and go out separately. So you get um, you do get patient marriages as you move into the modern period. But those marriages they are occasionally patient to patient, but more often it's patient to somebody that they've met outside. Yeah, that's a creepy phenomenon that happens, and that's a big thing in America too is, you know, these serial killers always get married when they're in prison because they have all these groupies and fans, and it's just, mm. I, I, I don't get it. I mean, Lauren, I mean, can you explain that? I mean, you're, you're the woman here. No, I, I can't explain that. Uh, I, yeah. Mind you, you see, if Christiana Edmonds was presenting herself to you, I would. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) You're the only one that that openly admitted that you would actually uh, go into a relationship with anybody that had been in Broadmoor. Well, yeah, I mean, but before she was convicted. Can you explain it? (laughs) She seems fun. (laughs) And like I said, free chocolates. I mean, and like you said, I might get a little sick from it. I'll get over a bellyache. I like chocolate creams. There we go, then. That's it, isn't it? You know, so it's what... Guess whatever the serial killer's offering. No. I uh, I know we're we're, we're rapidly approaching the hour mark, so I'm going to let you go soon. But I do want to ask, when your book came out, did you get much feedback from descendants of people from the time that were there? Yeah, I mean, we do. I mean, as you might imagine, I mean, because we look after the hospital's archive, I mean, we're often being contacted by people who found somebody in their family tree. And uh, and they're usually fascinated and they want to find out more. And the, the nice thing, I suppose, in inverted commas, about Victorian asylum records is quite often you can find out an awful lot about one of these patients. So you can find out a lot about your ancestor, but also often their wider family as well. Yeah, I mean, there's always a, a fascination with the place. I mean, when I was, uh, with the, I was doing the book, the hospital was coming up to its 150th anniversary, and the, I was very fortunate that I've got very good relationships with the hospital, and they were prepared to let me come in and, and talk to them a bit while that anniversary was going on. So there's a lot of interest on site as well, you know, both the staff and the patients who are there today are fascinated with the fact that they're, if you like, standing and walking in the footsteps of these people who've been there a hundred 
to 150 years before. And I think for a lot of people, actually, who are involved in the hospital, it does give you hope of the fact that people can be discharged, that people can make a life outside. And indeed, like people like Richard Dad and William Chester Minor, they can be remembered for something else other than the offence that took them in there in the first place. Yeah, I mean, they're not just... Here, my cat's trying to say hi. Hello, cat. What's your cat's name? That's Cleocatra. Hello, Cleocatra. Can we see your... I can't see her. I've got an enormous ginger tom called Billy at this end. You, I fear, would probably make mincemeat of you. Is she on camera now? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She looks, she looks like she wants attention. Oh, I she think. does. She hears Lauren's voice <laughs> and she goes nuts. <laughs> All right, Cleo, that's your, that's your 15 minutes. Oh, bye, Cleo. Um, yeah, now... I, I, I putting you on the spot now, and I'm bringing you back on for Oscar Wilde, for sure. And I have to ask if I can get a signed copy of your book for my mother. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I don't know how we're going to achieve this at the moment. No, we'll wait till COVID's over, but uh, okay. she uh, loved the book, um, which she got out of the library here, so she doesn't own a copy of it, but she absolutely loved the book. And she's the one who wanted to know about the siren. I think she wants to buy the siren. <laughs> she got room for the siren yeah that's how she's going to call you to thanksgiving dinner yeah the siren will go off with the siren <laughs> there, there's have there been any recent escapes before you go i think i think the last one was about 30 years ago but the the, the hospital the way it is today i mean I, I suppose it's tempting fate but i just don't see how you could escape from it it's so secure so i think for the last I think over the last 40 years, the handful of getaways there have been have been when people are actually in the community. So they're on a socialising trip out to a shop, to the cinema, to have their hair cut, whatever, and they've done a bunk at that point. Um, so it does still happen, but it doesn't really happen from the hospital the way it did once upon a time. And Lauren, before uh, we let Mark go, do you have anything else you'd like to ask? Um... Apart from Richard Dad, who is your uh, favourite um, patient that you've discovered? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, there are various patients that I've researched that I need to write up their stories. And I think uh, the stories that I'm most interested in um, relate to, without giving names away, relate to stories of sort of um, where I can pick over several generations based on one patient, um, and particularly where I can track immigrants through that and give a sense of the immigrant's life and then assimilation into um, society beyond that. Um, but also the women who've, who've left families behind um, and their attempts to try and get back to those families. I think I find that very, very sad because uh, it's something where you can see there's a desperation from both within and without the asylum to try and join that family unit back together again. You know, it's something where, if you like, the law has intervened, where actually nobody else would have sought to make a prosecution. Um, so that's usually when somebody's killed killed a baby or a small child. But yet there's still a family unit outside, and that family unit is desperate to have that person back. So can we expect another book coming? There, I mean, tragically, there are three books in preparation. But, you know, do I have time to do any of them? No. Um, but maybe one day. 
maybe one day you will see one or all of those three books come out. I hope so, because I'll be buying them the day they come out. It's very kind. On that note, I will let you go, and uh, we'll because I know uh, you wanted to do a little earlier than we usually do because the time zone difference. We did one at three in the morning in our time the other day, so <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a bit much, I have to say. But no, this is much appreciated because it's uh, it's only quarter past seven over here, so that's seems plenty of the evening left. Yes, excellent. So thank you so much for joining us, and you are coming back for Oscar Wilde. I mean, you don't have an option now. Because we have you on record saying you would, so... Yeah, very happy to, you're, yeah. You're stuck with it now. <laughs> oh, thanks so thanks much. very much. No, that was great. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Have a great thanks. night. Fabulous. Lovely. Yeah. Thank you very much, Faith. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And there goes the Skype machine. Ah, what did you think, Lauren? I really enjoyed it. It's fantastic and very interesting. And, and I found a new historical crush. Oh, yeah. That, that, that's, that's disturbing. <laughs> she <laughs> sounds fun. And then you go, Laura, can you explain to us why women uh, fall in love with serial killers? And I'm like, well, you're the one that said you would date a serial killer. So, you know, <laughs> you're better posed to answer that. Yeah, well. Yeah, Al Brian. It's called projection. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's really, really hot here, so I think I'm going to go in search of some snow cones. <laughs> For those of you who Ansel, listened. Yes, Ansel accepted your challenge. He was rather disappointed that we didn't think that he would do it. I, You know, he did, so I need to know who he's going to challenge next. So, <laughs> <sighs> Yeah. So uh, who are you challenging next? Well, I only have to challenge one person. I already challenged Ansel, so... Uh... If I have to challenge someone else, um, I'm going to challenge uh, Physics Dave. <laughs> no, he's too serious. That's, he's why too it's, serious. that's why it's a perfect challenge. Hey, it's to end the plague. I love the way you say plague. Plague? <laughs> yeah, it's wrong. <laughs> it's not wrong. It's correct. Plague. Plague. Say duffs. Say goodnight, Brian. <laughs> goodnight, Gracie. No, that's a hint for a show coming up in the near future. But, yeah, you're right. It is time to say goodnight. And <laughs> from Mark in one of the shires in England, because there's only about a million of them. Yeah. Brian in Buffalo. And, as always, Lauren in Swansea. Good night. Good night. Oh, that was serious. <laughs> I try not to laugh. Plague. <gasps> no, I didn't say that.